Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Miscast. We are a podcast examining the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CEDH. I am your host, Drake Sasser, and with me today is watch enthusiast, ranch hater, and Crom Armix extraordinaire, Mikey Hollohan. How you doing today, Mikey? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Drake. I'm excited to talk about the new Kamigawa set and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, a big motivator for us to put our podcast together for the first time is the new Kamigawa Neon Dynasty sets coming out, along with its uh, companion commander sets and stuff. And it looks pretty powerful. I, I don't know how often we have sets that are part of the standard rotation that look as powerful and as impactful to CEDH as this one. Like we had like Throne of Ultrain, right? And uh, other powerful sets such as that. But uh, in general, I think we don't see a lot of high impact cards in standard sets. But I get... I get a lot of powerful vibes from from Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Yeah, I would agree. Usually, like when a new set comes out, it's like one or two cards CDH players are looking at. But this set, I feel like there's a plethora of different cards that people are trying to implement. Whether they're new combo enablers, just good value pieces, the lands are really interesting, and it's cool because there's just so many diverse things, and they're all very unique and different. And I think that's something that's been rare, except for maybe like Modern Horizons Two, which obviously wasn't a standard set. Yeah, was that set pretty powerful? Was it was, that, it was, was okay. That set, was that set good? It seemed good. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. it was all right. It was fine. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> they they've definitely shown that they don't hold back in the supplemental sets between that and Commander Legends and and what have you. The supplemental sets are often much more powerful and much more impactful than sets that are part of part of standard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's let's introduce ourselves briefly for those of us that don't know. Uh, my name is Drake Sasser. I have been playing Magic since 2005. The first set uh, that was out when I was learning to play Magic was actually 8th edition. I didn't buy packs till like 9th edition, but uh, I have uh, been playing since 8th edition. And I uh, started playing competitive Magic around 2011 and have been playing at a at least FNM level since then. You know, I had off and on when I was in high school and college and you know, I'd play PTQs and do that kind of stuff. And uh, then eventually moved into the Star City circuit where uh, I had a lot more success through like 2018 and 2019 going straight into the shutdown. Um, but I certainly have focused more on 60 card formats throughout my entire career. Even when I was playing casually, I was playing with just like 60 card decks that uh, threw together and was playing with my parents and learned to play on like revised cards, mana burn and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I don't have as much of a commander background. It was something I always played because the people around me played. And I even picked up CEDH just like with my friends as like a thing to do because I was like curious. I was like, what's, you know, how do we push this to the limit? How do we push commander as far as it can go? And this was back when I was Googling around looking at tapped out lists and stuff. But I think your origin story diverges quite a bit from that. All right. Yeah, for me, um, when I was in college, my friends all started to play EDH and a lot more, it was a lot more just like high powered, more casual. And so I started to play with them over breaks and things. And eventually I got into it and made my own deck. My first deck was a mirror deck, just, you know, abusing Fleshback Marauder and all that fun stuff. And then I went to my first SCG event where I was just playing in some of those pre-made commander pods and I got just pub stomped and I was like, whoa, that's really cool. I want to learn how to do that. 
And then I went down the YouTube rabbit hole, found the Laboratory Main X channel, and ever since then I haven't looked back and everything's been CDH since. So I definitely don't have the experience of 60 card formats, but I think it's it can be helpful and hurtful in some ways, but I definitely think it's really helped me just become quite good at the CDH format and know a lot of the different nuances and things that a lot of other players will overlook. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly impressed in having seen someone that you, cause you've come from no 60 card formats at all. Have you ever played like even like a standard FNM or, you know, whatever? I played one modern Monday with uh, our friend Penn and I okay. went O2 and then scuffed out of the third round to play CEDH. Nice. Nice. Just had enough. <laughs> Two rounds. That's enough. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Not for everybody. Uh, wow. Yeah. See, that's so, so different for me. I think I've played, one like remotely serious competitive EDH event that was like a FNM style here in Birmingham. And that's it, I think, for my actual high stakes competitive. I've certainly gotten more into competitive EDH as the uh, the shutdown, uh, being able to play on spell tables, been an, a very powerful tool and uh, has allowed me to kind of co connect with a lot of the CDH content creators and the people that are playing a lot and playing publicly in discords and pods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in general, I certainly, it's just so disproportionate how much comp like constructed 60 card magic I have played versus CEDH. So I think that difference in perspective is going to be going to be really cool because there's, there's some pretty key differences. There's some cards that are certainly shared, you know, the really busted stuff still really busted, but uh, not a lot of whatever dockside extortionists going around in 60 card formats and, uh, certainly no Ristic studies. That card I don't think ever saw play in a 60-card format and is just you know actively very good in uh, in CEDH. Yeah, I always think it's funny when you and I talk about like card evaluation and you're like, this card's cracked. And I'm like, Drake, that's not very good. We don't we, we can be doing better things here. Yeah, it's, and it's just like, wow, this card's like so good. It has these combo implications. Like that is the worst thing I've ever seen. It's, it's just so bad. I would never put that in my decks. But I mean, there is a lot of, of difference in uh, approach when it comes to deck building when you have to consider four players. And I think that makes uh, competitive EDH deck lists uh, very interesting to read for players that are coming from 60 card formats and maybe just play commander casually. And they're like looking at a competitive commander deck and they're like, what, what is this? Like, why are we doing this? I thought this was supposed to be busted turn one, everything. No, it's, it's, it's none of that. It's uh, there's a lot of interaction and some of the cards, you know, are better than they look. There's more than meets the eye. Yeah, for sure. Well, for this little little bit before we dive into Kamigawa Neon Dynasty fully, uh, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about uh, what are you working on in like CEDH or I mean otherwise in the the Magic space. Is there is there any decks you're working on? Anything new you're trying? Kind of want to check in with you every periodically, every now and again on the show, and just see see what you're working on. Yeah, right now I'm not working on anything too new. Um, Armix Crom's been my main list for the past few months, and I've just been enjoying it so much. I haven't really visited some other decks, but I definitely want to start picking up Anala again because I feel like that was one of the first lists that really got me like some notoriety within the community, and I barely even touch it anymore. So that's definitely something I want to revisit, see what I can update, some changes to make, um, and get back into that mindset of just counting to four and casting Spellseeker versus killing everyone's uh, commanders over and over again with Armix. Yeah, I've uh I think I we discussed a little bit on Twitter. My uh my commanders have died a lot to some Armix triggers and I've certainly seen you uh kill kill a lot of very important stacks pieces and what have you just by uh, attacking with Armix. A card that I mean that's 
literally exemplifies the interaction we were talking about earlier where it's i look at that card and i'm like wow this thing is horrible and you're just like over here farming people i mean what was you, you had some insane record records of course don't matter but i mean i was part of a lot of these pods just getting farmed by you uh crom armixing everybody is it was impressive it was an impressive display and you know, i think it's one of my calls for decks that's certainly underrepresented underplayed and underrespected. it's just incredibly powerful i've been very impressed with your work on crom armix for sure yeah thank you yeah having um Removal on uh, the stick in the command zone is just so powerful. Like everyone builds these decks around their commanders, and if they can't stick, then you lose your value engines. And I think Malcolm has the highest kill count so far for Armix. So I've killed a lot of Malcolms in my day, and <laughs> that's been very satisfying. <laughs> is, that, is that card a, a two two or is it a is it a two one? How big is how big is Malcolm? It's not large. I I can't imagine that card is. It's a two two. So yeah, pretty easy, easy to, to kill. kill. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. No, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen you kill some croms and stuff with it. It's not that hard to even kill some big creatures. It's it's impressive. It's very impressive. Well, I, uh, I'm i working on some new archetypes I haven't really played before. I, some of the poly tyrant decks, I found a, a Tavesh Thrasios one from the database that looked really good. I I don't necessarily like being restricted to like mono blue where you see Urza's normally like the poly tyrant stuff. Uh but being having access to like sweepers in black is like really appealing and having like Thrasios alongside like Tavesh for like multiple card advantage engines. You can just like play like a very mid-rangey game and that kind of like low uh, combo commitment where you really just need to play, you know, a couple polymorph effects and your Holebreaker horror uh, alongside a lot of really fair mid-range cards looks really sweet to me. So been giving that a try been working on some some tim necrom lists start looking at some more partners as i traditionally play a lot of like all-in combo storm stuff like bergy and yidra storm and all that kind of stuff where i kind of got my origins I, i'm kind of branching out looking at playing some more fair decks trying to learn from you a little bit yeah i think i definitely really like a lot of the polymorph strategies that are going around a big fan of thrasios rog and um i have a four color evo polymorph list that layers in like spell seeker combo and like intuition piles uh, that's something else that I need to revisit again. Right now, I'm been uh, having Zach play test for me a little bit over at Playing with Power, and he's been enjoying the deck so far. Oh, look at you! You have minions. You have minions working on decks for you, huh? Yeah, that's generally what I do. I make lists, and then I don't play them. I have other people try them out, and then they complain about the mana base every time without fail because I'm very bad at making mana bases. I always just forget. It, it is a skill. A, it's a skill. It's on it. Yeah, a lot of uh, prismatic vistas with no basics to fetch and things along those lines. <laughs> okay, that's, that's why a other people. That's pretty bad. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it's bad. Like you can ask Hal and Eric; they they've been there a lot. They keep asking for lists, and they're like, "Yeah, cool, I'll go get a basic." Like, yeah, again about that, right? Uh, there's a problem here. Yeah, no, uh, that's that's a skill that actually I've I've been surprised it ports very well from sixty card formats. Is being able to kind of refine mana bases a little bit once you've built enough sixty card mana bases and trying to cast certain cards on curve. I mean, I, I'm not somebody that sits there and does the Carson math every single time, but you can kind of get a feel for all right, this card's just uncastable. Like you, you cannot cast this whatever a Necropotence uh, even on like four lands consistently, and you're a three color deck. That's unacceptable. Like these are the kinds of things you can pick up just by scanning some of these mana bases that people build. And uh, I mean, I've seen people not include all the fetch lands that they can play, and you know, even yeah, I can see issuing like one duel or whatever. But I've seen you know people start moving towards playing some of the the buddy lands or the battle lands, the ones that check for number of opponents before playing like other fetchables in their colors like actual dual lands that are fetchable in the colors. And that's just, I think that's so ridiculous to me when you're building a 20 
eight plus land mana base, which is what you should be building, Mikey. Looking at you. I like twenty seven. Uh, it's fine. Everything's unbelievable. fine. Unbelievable. <laughs> when you're building these mana bases, just yeah, play your fetches, play your duels. Uh build build mana bases that function, please. Just cast your spells. That's all I'm asking. All right. Well, I think uh that's really interesting. I'm excited to see where uh kind of our projects take us, and maybe there'll be some overlap with some poly tyrant decks. But I think we can go ahead and dive right in to Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Uh, so I have a little list of cards that you and I have put together that we think uh, may have some kind of impact or already having an impact. You know, people are already have these cards in their hands. It released uh, Friday last week. We recorded we're recording this on two, 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 the uh, the best taco Tuesday there is because it's just maxed out on twos. Uh, we have had the cards in our hands for I, I don't even want to do the calculation. It's been four days. Uh, yeah, that released on the 18th. So we've had the cards in our hands for four days. So there was a lot of discussion and CDH is very pro proxy from my experience. So people have been proxying up these cards since they've been spoiled, really. Uh, so we've been playing with these cards for a couple weeks now, and you know, we actually have them in our hands now and seeing a little bit of play. So we have a little bit of information going into this about what's already seeing play. But I think there's also still a lot to explore, and we're really going to dive into that with our with our breakdown here so to start off with without further ado let's look at some of the rares and mythics from kamigawa neon dynasty that uh we think is gonna have a have an impact on the set on cdh as a whole start off with the big one the uh card that was probably most hyped i think in cdh coming out there's some there's some competition but i i think this is the one that was certainly talked about the most certainly in my circles is Beseju who endures so Beseju Who Endures is a legendary land. It is a rare, and it taps to add a green to your mana pool. It also has the channel ability, a returning mechanic in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty from, I think, the original Kamigawa cycle. So it has one and a green. Discard Beseju Who Endures. Destroy target artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land an opponent controls. That player may search their library for a land with a basic land type. Put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. So there's a ton to unpack here. There's, I mean, it's uncounterable. It destroys artifacts, enchantments, or non-basic lands. You can blow up problematic lands. Then they get to search for not just any basic land, but any land with a basic land type. Comes in untapped. And there's, of course, a cost reduction on this. Uh, and I believe the entire cycle has that cost reduction ability where it costs one generic less to activate for each legendary creature you control. This card, I mean, it's it's an, it's a fun one to read. This looks really powerful. I mean, uncounterable removal is already a premium CDH, right? Yeah, I think this card has a lot of potential. Um, you know, one of the most common wins that like every deck is running is Underworld Breach. Mm -hmm. And now this is an uncountable way to deal with it because a lot of times when people are going off a breach, it's really hard to interact with it. They have like a pact negation or other counter spells in their yard. So removal usually doesn't do it. But the fact that this is, is, is uncountable is really powerful where you can just interrupt breach lines and it gives like another tool to interact with that or just other problematic artifacts and things that are on the battlefield. It's definitely very cool. Yeah, it is hard. It's hard to respond to. I mean, unless people start playing some of the goofy stuff like Trick Bind and Stifle, like really the best interaction for it is Deflecting Swat that sees play right now. And that's I mean, that's a short list of cards considering, you know, the long list of interaction pieces that decks normally have access to. Yeah, for sure. And like, well, I think Tails End and things like Stifle and such 
kind of like can could have a place. I just don't think they're broad enough to really slot in. So I think Baseju is something that when people start teching into decks, it is going to be really hard to deal with. And I don't think I see myself slotting in Trickbind as an answer to this one card because I don't really like I rather just have more flexible answers. So it definitely puts us in an interesting bind where you have to respect that this could be an answer, but I don't think we should be teching our decks super aggressively to deal with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is, I mean, it is certainly problematic because if you think about when players go for combo turns, a lot of times they lead with something that gives them a vote of confidence, something like silence or veil of summer, something that like, you're like, okay, my spells are going to resolve. So I can go for it with, you know, no clenching of anything. I, I don't have to worry. We're just, uh, no spells can be cast. So unless they have some weird trickery, we're good to go. And this is, I mean, this is an activated ability. So it gets around the silence effects. It gets around uh, Ranger Captain of EOs. And these are just like very common effects that people use to protect their their combo turns and make sure that you know they're not going to get beat way down the line once they've committed a ton of their resources. And this, I mean, this just beats all of it. And frequently at a one mana cost. I mean, this is this whole format's called Commander. You're going to have a legendary creature a good amount of the time. So this ability is only going to cost a green to activate uh, a good amount of the time. So and the legendariness of it, like the fact it's a legendary land doesn't really matter because you can't play more than one anyway. I mean, this seems fairly free. The kind of question is for green decks. Are you more interested in replacing a spell with this and up, artificially upping your land count? Or are you maybe just trying to cut a land and get a little greedy with it? Also, being green like matters, right? Because, you know, Krom, Timna is among the best partner pairings there is, and they can't slot this in. So it is it is a little boost to to the green decks as well, which I, I like quite a bit, given how much red's gotten over the last year or so. Yeah, I definitely think this is something that replaces a spell in your deck. Um, I wouldn't view this as a land. This is something you just want to hold on to and treat it as an interaction piece, and then only play it as a land if you're, like, super desperate to make land drops or something along those lines. I, I don't see this... Like, it, you know how I run 27 lands in all my decks. If I were to slot this into something like Evolution, I would definitely go up to 28 lands and just treat this as a spell. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would want to do, too. I love this kind of stuff. Even, like, the cards from Zendikar Rising or whatever that uh, are, like, a land on the back half. Cards like Shatter Skull Smashing or Seagate Restoration. I love those kinds of cards in decks that can afford to play them. You know, Seagate Restoration is kind of an expensive card to cast. But, like, in Bergy, I play both... Uh, the Valakut Awakening and uh, Shatter Skull Smashing uh, to just artificially up my land count to 30 lands. That way, you know, if I really need to make land drops, which happens some amount of the time if you're waiting to go off, just being able to make an extra land drop can can matter a lot. I often quote that it's the best ramp spells, just making your land drops for turn. And, uh, you know, these kinds of effects that are interaction pieces that are uncounterable, that help get around the common lines that we see already and can artificially up your land counts are stuff I'm really excited to play with in CEDH because I think it's going to make for a lot more interesting games that uh, favor interaction a lot more often. Excited about this this card for sure. And I think we've already seen it see play. This is one of those that I don't even think there's a question. I think this card is going to be played some amount. Now, the real question is, do you think it's overhyped? Does every green deck need to play this card? I think it's a little bit overhyped in that regard, just because it, like, in four color decks where you just have so many tools to begin with, I don't know if this makes the cut or not. But I think I would need to really test it out. Like, I, I'm going to try it in Evolution at some point once I pick up that deck again. Uh, I don't know if it'll make the permanent slot in, but I definitely think it's something that is a little bit overhyped right now. I think that also just, you can see that in the price of it. It's a rare that's going for like 30, 40 bucks. 
And I think yes. some of that hype will definitely die down over time as people start to experiment a bit more. But it's definitely something that you need to respect. And it's definitely something to consider in your list, especially if you like having answers for everything like I do. Like I have you you see my list. I've run like 30 instances just to have as much interaction as possible. Oh, yeah, and for it, sure. Yeah, and I definitely think it's a very powerful effect that people have already taken notice of. And I'm very curious to see as it gets played more, because right now I'm not seeing it too much. Granted, you know, the set just came out. But I definitely think it's going to rise in popularity as people start to see that it just blows out Breach. And I think something like this is better than Endurance, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Endurance, I mean, has a lot more requirements. Needing an extra green card is certainly a, a big cost or you have to have one green green up and it still gets stopped by all the silence effects like this. As far as answering a Breach, once it's on the table, this card is leagues better. And uh, I think is actually going to work a subset of the time. This is something that players that are playing Underworld Breach, I think, are going to have to be prepared for, either with like a bounce spell to pick up their Breach in response or some kind of way to answer this particular ability. Um, and it's often very hidden because the card is not something you can tutor for very easily. Like you have to actually just play Vampiric Tutors, Demonic Tutors. There's not a lot of like land specific tutors that don't just put the land in play. <laughs> so actually tutoring this to your hand as like an answer is... Uh, going to be fairly concealed and i i can foresee a lot of blowouts as people begin to kind of figure out where this card fits in and how how often to hold the card up versus play it and what have you but i'm excited about this card i think this one is the best of the cycle and i think that's why we're gonna we've commit so much time to talking about it specifically i think this is the one that's going to see the most play um even though a lot of them i think are worth considering this one really stands out as answering a lot of problems in competitive edh in a way that i think is healthy um i mean we can have our differences or whatever but i think trying to answer cdh problems with stacks pieces i mean specifically hold breacher i know we go back and forth on that card i think this card is going to be a lot more appealing to the player base at large than uh something like hold breacher which has a lot of a lot of fans and a lot of not so much fans so uh i don't know i'm excited about this card i'm excited to get this card in my hands and uh, i think it's going to be really powerful yeah for sure all right, moving on, let's talk about the rest of the cycle. So I think these cards, being uncounterable, being able to play them around silences, and like the fact that they are so quote-unquote free. What I mean by free is there's not a big deck-building cost. The fact that you can always just play them as a land untapped is extremely powerful. You don't ever need to worry about playing multiples because you can't, and they're always you know a spell if you want them to be. Now, they don't trigger things that care about spells, so I'm sorry, my Just Guy Sentency deck, these aren't very good in you, but... Yeah, you, know, you might have to play some of them anyway. Um, these cards, I think, are all worth looking at, given that the cost to put them in their in your deck is so low. So I'm going to highlight kind of the rest of the cycle, read them off, and we can kind of talk about the ones that we think are interesting and why. Start off with, I'm going to go with the one I think is the next best in the cycle, which is the Otawara <laughs> Soaring City. Now, there's a good chance I'm going to pronounce a lot of things wrong on this podcast, Feel free to roast me on whatever platform you feel like it, but I, I'm not going to improve, and I'm committed to not improving because I'm doing my best. Anyway, Otawara, Soaring City, Legendary Land, taps to add a blue mana to your mana pool. Has the channel ability for three generic and one blue. Discard Otawara, Soaring City, return target artifact, creature, enchantment, or planeswalker to its owner's hand. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. So you can get a big, much bigger discount on this one. If you have multiple legendary creatures, it gets an even bigger discount. And this is a uncounterable bounce spell. So I think that card has a lot more implications given that bounce spells are already one of the better ways to interact 
in CEDH because they're often the cheapest ways to answer anything, like any kind of non-land permanent. And you don't actually need to blow it up because often you can just bounce it for a turn and then kill the whole table. What do you what do you think of Tawara? Uh, this is the only other one of the cycle that I think will really see play. And really? this one, I, yeah, I think like this one and Besager are the two that I was looking at the most. This one I'm not as sold on. Like I think the fact that you're able to like bounce something like Rule of Law or a Stacks piece is pretty nice since it's a trigger ability, so that gets around a lot of stuff. Or like you can bounce a Rule of Law and then cast your spell for turn, vice versa. I don't think this one is going to be as impactful since we already have so many great bounce spells. And I think the fact that it's blue and two for the most part in index, it's going to be a little bit harder for me to want to include this compared to Besaju. For sure. Does the fact it's blue at its like cost, like it's better as a land, I think, to just play like as a land most of the time instead of thinking of it as a spell. Like Besaju only making green is really problematic because green decks, like that's not one of the best colors. The best colors in CDH, like I think undisputably are blue and black. You can argue the order, but I think blue and black are the best colors, having access to tutors and the draw spells and counter spells, all extremely important. So making a more impactful color, I think makes it a better land and a worse spell. How do you think that impacts? Because I think that does have an impact on the card's assessment. Do you think that increases the value, especially in, I don't know, like three color or less decks? Does it become more free to just play it as a land? Uh, I think it's pretty free in two colors and obviously monocolor decks. When you get to three, I, I'm usually pretty hard-pressed to want to include basics in my list. Um, yeah, for sure. So I, I, I don't, like, I definitely see this, like, in, like, the Kinnons of the world and, like, all that kind of stuff. Like, I definitely see this having a place there because, as you said, it does just come into play untapped, which is pretty great. But the fact that it's not fetchable and only makes one color makes me pretty hard-pressed to want to slot this into three color plus decks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm thinking of like Cephalid Coliseum is like the baseline where this is a, a land that's always just a land, but like kind of can work as a spell. Sometimes you see people play. I mean, I think some of the Krom Timna lists play it and we see it in a lot of a lot of deck lists as a onboard uncounterable answer to like a Thoracle combo where you can just make them draw cards in response. Um, I, I don't know how Otawara necessarily lines up if they're fighting for the same spot or not, but I think, I think tapping for blue means we're a little bit more likely to see this as just a land people play that can sometimes be a bounce spell rather than Besaju, which I think is more often going to be a removal spell that can very rarely sometimes be a land. Uh, but I do agree that I think that's the next best of the bunch, but I do not think it is the only one that could see play. Uh, I think there is, I think there's a couple others in here that are worth taking a closer look at. With that, let's move on to Iganjo, Seat of the Empire. This is the white land of the cycle, so it taps that a white mana to your mana pool, legendary, comes untapped, the whole works. It also has the channel ability. This one costs two generic, one white, so need two uh, legendary creatures to get it discounted to just a single white mana. But two generic and a white, discard Iganjo, Seat of the Empire. It deals four damage to target attacking or blocking creature. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. This land, I think, is worth looking at, mainly and solely because of the popularity of Krom, Ludovic's Opus. Being an uncounterable answer to Krom, it's just a land out of your hand, means I think this card should see play in two color or less decks that are white, and is worth looking at if you're in a third color. It's just a good piece of interaction. It's also kind of good against, like, the Winota decks. Like, it has some spots where it's very, very powerful to just have an extra removal spell, but if your your deck really, I think, needs to be able to play it as a white land in matchups where 
killing and attacking or blocking creatures just isn't as important because whatever, there's not as much attacking or blocking in the late game or or whatever. It needs to be good as a single white land and good as a removal spell in matchups where that matters. Thoughts? Yeah, I think like once again, like two color decks and such, it's um not bad. It, it does have some versatility, but like once you get to three color plus, it's like we already have a lot of good removal. Like we have swords, there's path. Um, I'm just a little bit more hard pressed because it not being fetchable, I think, is a pretty big detriment to color fixing, especially since white's usually a splash color just for things like Savine's Wreck or Silence. Obviously, like some of the stacks decks that are multicolored, they're playing rule of laws and things, but in general, you don't need many white pips. And I think we just have enough cheaper removal that this one isn't as necessary. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Like I said, the, the, being the four of the magic number for killing Kroms, I think, is. The biggest selling point and would be the main reason it sees play if it does at all. But I don't think this is going to be running over every table or going to be in the conversation to be in every deck, kind of like Besage was at the moment. It's just something that I think is underhyped compared to the the other two big ones in the cycle, Besage and Otawara. Yeah, that's fair. All right, moving right along. Let's look at what I think is also a consideration for at least two colored decks or less. But I think this one could see, see play in the right four color decks too. This is... Oh, geez. Takanuma, Abandoned Mire. This is the black one of the cycle. Taps to add a black mana, has channel ability. Use three generic and one black. Discard Takanuma, Abandoned Mire. Mill three cards, then return a creature or planeswalker card from your graveyard to your hand. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. So this is a card that I think is a good piece of recursion for specifically creatures i don't we don't see a lot of planeswalkers and cdh you see like narsets here and there and tavashes but like you're not going to leave those in the graveyard to return uh the mill three is not nothing there are a lot of decks that like incidental mills you see things like winds of rebuke see play over other options because of the the mill ability and uh, this once again uncounterable instant speed it's like something you could do on instep to return a like dothy void walker that was just killed or you know, if, especially if you're in like a stacks deck or something. I think this this has some real applications. And once again, the big selling point is that it is a black land. Being able to make one of the more impactful colors, being able to cast Necropotence off of it, all I think matter a lot when evaluating this card as a land. Like a lot of times you need to evaluate is the card better as a land or as a spell. When it comes to the green one, it's way better as a spell because green lands aren't that good unless you're in like mono green or something. And it is the cheapest of the spells, so it's just a better spell. This one... Takanuma, I think, should be evaluated as a land. This is a land, comes in untapped, taps for a black, and then sometimes, in very rare corner cases, you get a little bit of extra mileage out of it, getting a free raised dead with a little bit of extra mill for your trouble uh, as, as a spell if you're flooded or the game's going long or what have you. Yeah, this one, I, I kind of run into the, the same issue with the white one, where like the effect is definitely not bad, and... Once again, coming in on play untapped is good. It's just three color listen up. Uh, we, there's just so many options to get stuff out of your yard, right? You have the shallow graves, you have necromancy, you have reanimate. And I just get kind of like if you're on a basic, then yes, this obviously takes that spot. But I think when you're in three color up decks, you really want to be playing the battle bond lands, things that are fetchable, really help with your color fixing. And I don't think the effect is powerful enough when there's already so much redundancy and recursion in black that uh, it's really necessary. Mikey says it sucks. No good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go that far. It's just like, like I, I can definitely see it in two color lists. It's just when you get above that, like you really want to prioritize color fixing. And I think if you're on a basic and a three color up list, like 
this can definitely slot into that, but I'm much more in favor of being lean on the land count, leaning more into artifact mana, and to to make sure that you were able to cast all your spells. Yeah, it's funny we're having this conversation after we kind of let off on a discussion around mana bases and making sure you can cast your spells and I'm over here like yeah play these uh monocolored lands in your deck because there are spells sometimes i think that's uh that's a artifact of coming from a 60 card format uh environment where utility lands are actually some of the more powerful things you can do i mean mutavault was a meta breaking thing for standard and Mutavault's almost comically unplayable in CDH. I, I don't know. Somebody's going to correct me and say, there are some deck where Mutavault's great, but like Mutavault's unplayable in competitive EDH and is just like actively very powerful in 60-card uh, formats. So I think my attraction to utility lands may be a little disproportionate to yours, uh, given the discrepancy there in those formats where having a little bit extra mileage out of your lands doesn't really matter as much in formats where the spell... Uh, power level discrepancy is already really high, and you have four, uh, three other players to contend with. Yeah, it's also just a difference in play style, because like the decks that I play, they generally try to do things a little bit faster. So I, I just have like a lower land count where you play decks where it's a lot more important to make your land drops and such. So you just have a lot more flexibility with it. Where I'm kind of like, I, I only use 27 lands like in all my lists. So it really depends on play style and like the deck. Um, it just these just don't excite me as much with the things that I enjoy doing in Commander. Quick tidbit before I read the the last of the land cycle here, one that I think is not really relevant to the conversation at all. One of the big lessons from competitive magic, if you're listening, you're coming from a 60-card format, and you still play 60-card formats, some of the approaches that the best players in the world would do is they would take winning deck lists, something that was just, you know, whatever, winning on Magic Online or had won the latest Grand Prix or what have you, they would take that deck, they would cut the worst card in it, for another land. The lesson here is play more lands in your deck. Casting <laughs> your spells is good. Cast your spells. Yeah, and you and Hire are on the same boat as that. Hire's been trying to get me to get off 27 lands for a long time, but I'm like, it keeps working for me. Cast your know. spells, Mikey. Especially since you mulligan so much in this format. You want to have a good quantity of lands to actually cast your spells when you're mulliganing low. Cast your spells, Mikey. I cast my spells. I'm fine. Everything's fine. All right. I mean, I've, seen, I've seen you I'm cast on... your spells, so what do I know? <laughs> anyway, the last of the cycle. This one I'm only going to mention because we mentioned literally all the rest of them. I think this card, uh, maybe I'm sleeping on it, but I don't think it's very good at all. You have Sokenzen, Crucible of Defiance. This is the red one of the cycle. Taps out a red. About time red got a bad card in the cycle, right? Uh, has channel as well. Has three generic, one red, discards Sokenzen, Crucible of Defiance, create two 1-1 one, one colorless spirit creature tokens. They gain haste until end of turn. This ability costs one less for each legendary creature you control. Not a lot of power there. Maybe there's some universe where you're playing a low color polymorph deck and you want like more creatures to polymorph. Like the first thing I think of this kind of thing or to do with this kind of thing is like uh, indomitable creativity. Like you see in 60 card formats, they have like that dwarven mine card that makes like a one, one dwarf and you just like polymorph that into your big fat creature or whatever. So maybe there's like some implication with that somewhere, but even still it seems overcosted. So don't really think this one's going to see a lot of play. Yeah. I don't have much to say about this one. It, it, the effect is just so lackluster. Like in reality, you're generally going to be paying three for it. And you get two one ones, like cool. I don't even have flying. Get it, get it out. Get it out. Get it out. No good. Garbage. Well, 
with that, we have moved through the channel land cycle. Remember all those uncounterable instant speed and very, very free. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Good to see that kind of stuff coming back. I think these are all really, really cool, and I'm really interested to brew with them. And speaking of brewing, we have a, a powerful one and a hyped one up next. And uh, one reminiscent of a, a certain anime, if you grew up, I guess, in the generation I did. And we are, of course, talking about Hinata, the Dawn Crowned. Hinata this is, is a card I'm really excited for. Yeah, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are. This card is seeing a lot, a lot of buzz, and a lot of. I think that's good reason. It's really cool, reads well, and uh, allows you to play a lot of cards you haven't seen in a long time. This card, Hinata Dawn Crowned, costs one generic and Jeskai, so blue, red, white. It is a legendary creature, Kirin Spirit. It has flying and trample. And it has spells you cast cost one generic less to cast for each target. And it also has spells your opponents cast cost one generic more to cast for each target. So this is this is a card that's reward, uh, rewarding you for having more targets. It's a 4-4, four, four, of course. So it's a 4-4 four, four flying trample. does block croms. Uh, not profitably, but we'll trade with them. Um, and it's, I mean, it makes mana. Like, cards that I think of that that make mana are generally really powerful. I mean, you're looking at somebody that's played a lot with Goblin Electromancers and Barals and Bergy. Like, cards that have this ability to make near unbounded mana on your turn, I think, are always on a, on a watch list for me in CDH. And we're seeing a lot of that already with cards like Aurelia's Fury that, I mean, that card is is a joke, literally. It was the most overhyped card from Gatecrash or whatever. Uh, and now suddenly it might have a home in, in CDH with this card, seeing, allowing you to play a, a lot of really sweet cards that target a lot of things. Uh, what are your thoughts on Hinata, Dawncrowned? I'm a really big fan of it, and playing against it, it made you made me realize this, how many spells I'm casting target things. So obviously it impacts your counter spells because now your counter spells cost one more, so it's a little bit harder to protect things on your turn. But also Jessica's Will, that targets. But when you have to pay four for a Jessica's Will and someone only has like three or four cards in hand, it becomes a lot less profitable. I've also gone blown out with the brain freeze lines as I'm trying to like get my brain freeze off and such. And I'm just too tight on mana because one extra pip really can make or break when you're trying to protect your breach and you're casting other spells. And it's been very impressive to me. I think it's something that will reward uh, people who are good pilots because it's definitely a card where if you just slam it down blindly, you can just hand the game to someone. Because if people are tapped out, those fierce guardianships they were holding on to, Pax and Negation, Forcibles, those are all turned off. So it kind of runs into that issue that Lavinia and Grand Arbiter do, where if you're an inexperienced pilot or you're just like not really used to playing control, and you're just like, oh, I'm just going to jam this and everything's going to be fine, you just kind of hand someone the free win with Adnos because now they don't even have to protect it because no one can cast spells. So I definitely think it's a really powerful card. You just need to know when to pick your moment, when to cast it. And things like that. Because one, um, like our friend Zane, when he first picked it up, he cast it when people were tapped out. And I was just kind of laughing. I was like, okay, this turn two Nas is definitely resolving now. So Yeah. That's that's kind of one of the things I thought of, too, for sure, is that it kind of has that Teferi Time Raveler problem. I, that's one of the questions I get the most when uh, people are coming from 60 card formats to competitive EDH. You have... A lot of the cards that you'd expect, things like Silences and uh, you know, whatever, Ranger Captains, Veil of Summers, that kind of stuff to protect you on your combo turns. A lot of people are like, well, why don't, why doesn't Teferi Time Rattler see play? That's what it's used for a lot in 
competitive 60 card formats you have this card that stops your opponents from casting spells like you should be playing this and uh defense grid's kind of in the same vein and defense grid does see play so why why doesn't teferi time rattler see play and the answer is is kind of the same effect this card has where you have these expensive cards that make it difficult to play and combo off in the same turn you kind of want to play them and be able to pass even grand arbiter you do that with sometimes you tutor up a grand arbiter put it into play and then pass and try to win on your next turn uh they just allow your opponents to win the game. You've given your opponents protection. So Hanada kind of has that same problem where making all the interaction of the table costs one more. If you're not winning the game that turn and you don't have a lot of interaction for basically every single player, like you are essentially just winning the game for some one of your opponents. Like you are basically saying, okay, now nobody else at the table can cast spells. Go ahead and win. So I, that card kind of has has that problem. Lier uh, is one that has the exact same problem. You see it a lot in some of these expensive commanders that can look like they're really powerful because they protect your combo at face value. But when they have high mana costs, uh, you kind of have to be really careful when to play them and when not to. So I, yeah, like you said, I think this commander costing four mana means you probably aren't really looking to play it on turn one or two, which is actually less tempting given that Jeweled Lotus isn't that good with it. It only makes two of the four mana effectively for you so like this is a card you kind of want to wait till the game's developed a little bit and i think as a result favors a very very heavy interaction deck because you want to be able to make it to turn three or four be able to play this card start accumulating a mana advantage with it and be able to eventually do some really busted stuff um with 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 that yeah i agree especially since once again, a lot of spells target, but you, you kind of forget about, like Savine's Wreck costing one less. It makes your breach piles better. It yep. makes it easier to brain freeze yourself. Definitely a lot of potential. And it also makes some cards that are definitely not bad, but it makes them like insane. The Kiliad's Intervention, two white, destroy everyone's artifacts and everyone's enchantments. Like that. Yeah, that card's almost good enough on rate already. And then it's just like, okay, well, how about you just make it busted? How about you just wrath everybody but you? <laughs> on, exactly. On and you also have like, and then you have like Five Force. We have March of the Swirling Mist, which I think we're going to talk about next. Like, it just makes these X spells kind of insane. Like, the it's a very powerful commander, and it'll definitely just reward the solid control players. I think this is probably the one of the best, if not the best, control commander in the format at the moment. I think Grand Arbiter is also up there, and there's definitely pros and cons to both of these. But it's definitely like we'll reward those players like Whimsy, where you're no one to cast it. You know when the tax effects is not going to just lose you the game, and being able to like really just take advantage of uh, the value that they occur over time. Because as long as it sticks around, every spell you cast, you're getting value for the most part. Yeah, exactly. And like calling out Grand Arbiter, I think is a, a good call out because it seems very influenced by Grand Arbiter, right? It's like spells you cast cost one less for things. Spells your opponent cast cost one more. Like that's kind of the whole Grand Arbiter shtick. And uh, this. Very reminiscent. Also in blue and white, also cost four. Like, I think they're pretty easy to compare side by side and say, hey, okay, what does this card do different? How is it better? How is it worse? And so far, I've been really impressed. I mean, being able to pick up red as an extra color is already huge, getting access to Breach and Dockside and all the busted red cards that they've been printing. But uh, it also, like you said, favors, I think, actually taking a control role a lot more because all of your interaction spells cost uh less and all their interaction spells cost more and even some of their like reanimation spells like there's the list goes on and on for things that need to target that are even just part of combos that now no longer you know they cost one more and that is something that i think a lot of opponents are not really going to see so you're going to get a lot of surprise points in these early pods till people start to figure it out and of course you get to play with some some sweet cards like you called out uh march of the swirling mist gets a lot better and Healy's intervention aurelius fury i've seen Baral's expertise there's just a ton of 
ton of sweet ones. Last point on the card before we move on. Did you see uh, the discourse on Twitter today regarding this card and what is it like volcanic? Oh, uh, let me let me figure this out real quick. Give me just a second. Volcanic offering. I have Let's not. Uh, okay, this is by uh, Josh Elder Drunken Highlander, as some people know it. He made a tweet talking about how Hinata interacts with Volcanic Offering, which I'll read off real quick before we move on. Volcanic Offering is a four generic, one red instant. The text on the card is destroy target non-basic land you don't control and target non-basic land of an opponent's choice you don't control. Volcanic Offering deals seven damage to target creature you don't control and seven damage to target creature of an opponent's choice you don't control. So this card could cost one, but if your opponent selects the same target, it doesn't get reduced. So how do you go about casting this card when your opponent knows that? Like, because you have to, whatever, paying costs is after selecting targets. So when you're selecting targets first, like, how does that all resolve? It's a whole dispute. I tagged one of my judge friends, and they've uh, been commenting and get, providing some insight. But it's uh, it's kind of a wild interaction that's generated a lot of, a lot of discourse. But still, I mean, Volcanic Offering... A sweet, sweet little find there for Hanada. And this is the kind of thing you get to do uh, when when examining Hanada and some of the implications. I mean, that's like almost a four mana cost reduction on only one card from your commander. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of mana generated out of a four cost commander. And I, I think I think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of this card and I think it's going to be very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to see all the random stuff like Volcanic Offering people dig up where yeah. it was over it was over costed for cdh but hanada makes it very one good. mana one mana is a good price i could pay one mana i can pay one mana. yeah i can it. i can pay one mana for this type of effect that's pretty powerful <laughs> fair enough fair enough all right let's move on to the marches cycle i'm gonna go over the whole cycle real quick let me read through all of them um and we can kind of discuss the ones we think are good and are not uh the marches swirling mists are uh is going to be the first one it's the blue one it costs x and a blue it's an instant that says, as an additional cost to cast a spell, you may exile any number of blue cards, any number from your hand. This spell costs two generic less to cast for each card exiled this way. The text in the card then says, up to X target creatures phase out. So all of these marches, they all cost X and the color. So, you know, the white one costs X and a white, black costs X and a black, and so on. And they all have that ability where you can exile any number of the cards that share a color, any number of them total. And it gets cost reduced for by two for each card cast. So this is a pitch card. It's not free. They all at least still cost one, but that's fine. CDH can still cost one. And they each get cost reduced by two for each one. So the blue one, you called that one out as maybe the best bunch. X target creatures phase out. Sounds pretty good. But let's go over the other ones real quick. So the white one, of course, X and a white, any number of white cards. Exile target artifact, creature, or enchantment with mana value X or less. So, you know, of course, if you want to hit a two drop, it's only one white card. If you want to hit a, a three drop, you need to either commit a mana or commit another white card. Uh, and these these are all instants, by the way. Every single one of them, instant X in the color that shares. The black one says March of Wretched Sorrow. Wretched Sorrow deals X damage to target creature or planeswalker and you gain X life. The red one, called March of Reckless Joy, says exile atop X cards of your library. You may play up to two of those cards until the end of your next turn. And lastly, the green one is March of Burgeoning Life. It says choose target creature with mana value less than X. 
Search your library for a creature card with the same name as that creature and put it on the battlefield tapped, then shuffle. That one probably not so good. Searching for stuff with the same name in Commander, not terribly powerful. Yeah, out of all of them, I think the blue one's the one that will see the most played. The rest of them, I feel like they're kind of overcosted, and there's just better options, like the white one you have swords and uh, swords of plowshares, etc. But the blue one, I think, is crazy. Like, everyone <clears throat> loves to complain about stacks and how they hate the stacks matchup, and this is a really good answer to that. It's also a great answer to Winota, as you can just phase out the Winota, you can phase out the stacks pieces that are bothering you. I just think the card is insane. Like, Hanada obviously makes it busted, because one blue, you phase out everyone else's Phase out all the creatures, just a nice little temporary wrath for one man. It's pretty good. Yeah, but aside from that, I think this is definitely something that... I, I, this is what I'm considering slotting into my list, just because it's just a very mana-efficient answer to stacks. And I think people complain about the stacks matchup because they don't run cards like this. They don't run cards like Dress Down. And when you start slotting those in, you have a few more answers. The stacks matchup becomes much more bearable. Yeah, I, I'm less interested as a generic stacks answer, given that it only answers creatures. Now, I know, obviously, creatures are the best. You have things like Dranith Magistrate and Dothy Voidwalker and what have you. A lot of the, the best stacks creatures are, or a lot of the best stacks pieces are creatures. But, I mean, rule of laws, especially things like Deafening Silence and Rest in Peace and the, those kinds of enchantments, I think, are also fairly problematic. Not as much artifacts these days. We don't see as many winter orbs and all that stuff as we used to, but... Uh, enchantments, not being able to hit enchantments, I think is a really, really big ding for the card is just a generic power level. But I do agree with you that in Hanada, having access to just one mana, phase out as many creatures as you want is extremely appealing. Don't even need to pitch anything. Just phase them out, go for it, do whatever you want. That's, uh, there's a lot, a lot of power there. March of Otherworldly Light, like you said, yeah, it's not the best removal spell. I could maybe see this one seen play in lower color decks, especially things like Mono White that maybe won't have a lot of other options. I mean, you see play, like, uh, the White Beast Within. I think it's, like, Generous Gift uh, sees play. So, like, you're willing to go to some pretty extreme lengths to, to answer generic permanence when you're, like, monocolor. But outside of those kinds of implications, I don't think we're going to see a lot of the white one. The black one's just, like, a, uh, a drain life or whatever. I don't think we're going to see that card basically at all unless someone chooses it as their win condition for infinite mana. The green one, looking for only creatures of the same name, not great. And lastly, Mark, March of Reckless Joy is a card I've given a few looks for a deck like Berkey, where you are kind of looking to non-deterministic combo. I think it's bad basically everywhere else, but those kinds of cards are things that are somewhat appealing for Berkey, especially because you can instep it. You can just be like, all right, at the end of your turn, you know, whatever, pitch some piece of card that I don't think is very good. Um, but being capped at only being able to play two of those cards makes it a little worse. It is rather good with wheels, though. If you're willing to pitch a bunch of cards out of your hand, go through a bunch of your your deck to look for some spells that are powerful, and then untap and you know play either play a wheel from it or play a wheel out of hand. The card has some interesting implications. I I might be willing to try March March of Reckless Joy, but it's certainly not going to be format breaking or anything. It's just be like, okay, this is better than a tormenting voice. So it's just an interesting card, and uh, yeah, it's interesting to see them bring pitch cards back when the the first go round. And I think, oh, I don't even know what is it. Uh, betrayers of Kamigawa. All, all I remember is like the shoals, the disrupting shoal, and all those uh, were not not very good. And I think these don't necessarily follow directly in their footsteps. They're definitely kicked up a little bit, but still, once again, uh, rather disciplined and you know not not as busted as the pitch cards from like Modern Horizon sets and what have you. Yeah, I definitely, I'm a big fan of pitch cards in general. I just love being able to use like other cards in your hands as a resource. So. 
definitely excited that like we're, like where the car design is for the set as a whole as we talk about the lands and these X spells. So yeah, they're cool. It's making me much more excited because the past couple sets I feel have been kind of lackluster for CDH, and this one it's like if they start toying with some more of these types of mechanics, that's just awesome. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. It's just like super fun to like look at. It's like okay, well these are pitch cards. Like well you know cost reduction. That's that's something we got to look at and. Uh, this is uh, this is an interesting cycle to think about for sure. Um, yeah, I don't think there's too much else you want to discuss about the marches. Uh, so moving on, there's a card that I specifically called out because of Bergy. It's a card I've already been playing with a little bit. Now, it's not busted or anything, but it is a card I do want to call out as CDH playable because I think people are going to sleep on this card. This card is Invoke Calamity. This is also part of a five-card cycle. There are monocolored cards that cost one generic and four of whatever color it is. So they're trying to get you to be really committed to whatever color to cast this card. This is Invoke Calamity. One generic, red, 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 five mana total, instant. You may cast up to two instant and or sorcery spells with total mana value six or less from your graveyard and or hand without paying their mana costs. Quite a mouthful. If those spells would be put into your graveyard, exile them instead. Exile invoke calamity. So I, I guess I'll go on a little little tirade here. This card is interesting for a few reasons. First, it's kind of like a ritual effect, being able to cast something uh, or total amounts of spells that cost one more than the amount of mana you have. Of course, it costs five mana and it can cast two instant or sorceries with total mana value six or less. Uh, means that this card will some amount of the time make you some mana if you're casting some expensive instants and sorceries. Um, it can be cost reduced by M- Ruby Medallion still. That's actually really appealing for Bergy, which is, of course, what I'm referring to as someone that plays a lot of Bergy. This is a card that's interesting to me because of Bergy. And it can reach for spells out of your graveyard. We already play things like Finale of Promise, Past in Flames, uh, even things like Mizzic's Mastery because, you know, either can modestly cast one spell or it can cast a lot of spells this kind of has a lot of the same thing going on and being an instant also is not irrelevant you can grab some more interaction pieces out of your yard you can grab an interaction piece and like a copy spell and copy the interaction piece there's a lot of implications being able to cast this card at instant speed that a lot of the sorcery effects like passive flames and finale of promise don't have access to so the rest of the cycle we're not going to talk about because I don't think a lot of them are very good. I went through them. I don't think any of them are even worth talking about outside of Invoke Calamity, which I do have in my Bergy list at the moment. And I think the card has potential. I think this card being able to make mana as well as, you know, get some card advantage or get some rebuy, some recursion out of cards out of your graveyard. Um, and, of course, you can get some value if you're just playing stuff out of hand. Like I said, you're only really going to do that if you're making mana, if you're trying to cap out the full six and get some mana out of the deal. But uh, what do you you think of this card? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think you kind of summed it all up. Um, Obviously, having triple red pips makes this kind of like impossible to cast in a lot of higher color decks. But I definitely can see it in the lower color storm decks or like a Rakdos deck. Definitely has a lot of potential. I definitely think it's something that will see play as people start to experiment with it. Um, I think you covered that like beautifully. Like I don't have too much more to add to that one. Works for me. Cards a mouthful, but basically cast spells, hand, graveyard, instant sorceries only, instant speed, six or less for five mana. Kind of a deal. Good rate. Might see some of it. Moving on. Next up is a card that I think you're going to hate on, but I think is always worth looking at because I think all five color commanders are worth looking at in a CDH context because they can always add something new when you can play all of the cards available in CDH. 
um, and then just get some kind of value out of the command zone at all. So, of course, I'm referring to Kyodai. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Soul of Kamigawa. This card costs three generic and a white for a legendary creature, Dragon Spirit, 3-3. Three, three. This card has Flash. This card has Flying. And this card has a, when it enters, well, when Kyodai's Soul of Kamigawa enters the battlefield, another target permanent gains indestructible for as long as you control Kyodai. And then, of course, what makes this the five-color commander is it costs Wooberg, one of each color, and it gets plus five, plus five till end of turn. Blocks a Krom, blocks a Krom. That's probably not what it's there for. But I do think this card could see play if we start to see five-color uh, stacks decks come about, uh, especially if we keep seeing pri the primary way of interacting with those being like Abrupt Decays, Assassin's Trophies, um, Baseju, Culling Ritual... Like, Kyodai can protect an extremely important stacks piece when a player goes to destroy it, and, of course, can do so at instant speed, can be, like, a reasonable blocker. Like, this card isn't the most op oppressive. It's not going to draw you a ton of cards. It's not going to make a bunch of mana. But if you're doing something modest where you need to protect a particular permanent, being able to do so using this card and being in all four colors, I think, is not worth discluding. I hope that hope I said that right. But uh, what are your thoughts? Am I am I way out in left field here? This one I don't really like. Like I do see the potential of like a Staxi deck, or like if you have an important like creature that you need to keep around, like it's kind of cute. But I don't think it has a lot of potential. Like I think something like Kenrith just kind of does things better because that you can bring your creatures back with his reanimation effect. He gets uh, he has a better clock in my opinion, since you just kind of keep pumping up your creatures at a better rate than having one of each color uh he also has card draw but i kind of feel like it does doesn't really fit a niche at the moment where i think kenrith is just the superior five color deck for like a staxier build and then there's also Najil as a five color option which you can build kind of staxy but i just think those are two best five color commanders at the moment and i don't think that this making one permanent gain indestructible is as impactful especially because people can still bounce it because that's a lot of people's removal index is bounce spells and this doesn't do anything to prevent that from happening I think it's kind of cute. I think some people will experiment with it, but I, I don't think this is really going to have a, much of a splash in the format. Hard to argue with that. So you think if it gave Hexproof and Indestructible, the card would be uh, a little bit more appealing then? That would definitely make it more appealing, in my opinion. But even then, like just protecting one permanent, I don't think is good enough. Especially because like, if you're doing a stack stack and you have Rule of Law, um, it's not the hardest thing to protect your Rule of Law since you know people need to one answer and then if you counter it or someone else counters it because they realize that this person's trying to win and they can't go off yet i just don't think it really fits a niche that i don't think it solves problems that these types of decks have and i think kenrith is just the superior option if you're trying to do a staxi uh or like a rule of law centric five color list kind of like what ian's list is i think his is like pretty cool um and just the recursion that kenrith offers i think that's just way more valuable than giving something indestructible well, fair enough. No argument here. We'll move right along to the last of the rares and mythics. I'm not actually sure there were any mythics that we called out explicitly. I don't think there are. Uh, but the last of the rares then is Lion Sash. This is a card that you added, so I'm going to let you kind of take the ball on this one, but I'm going to go ahead and read it for the audience first. Lion Sash, one and a white, one generic, one white. Artifact creature equipment cat. So this is part of the artifact creatures that are both equipments and creatures kind of weird uh it is a one one and it has the ability pay a white exile target card from a graveyard if it was a permanent card put a plus one plus one counter on lion sash equip creature gets plus one plus one for each counter on lion sash and it has reconfigure 
And reconfigure is, of course, the replacement for equip. You got to be able to equip this thing. And it says pay two mana, attach to target creature you control, or unattached from a creature. Reconfigure only as a sorcery. While attached, this isn't a creature. So you can kind of flip it between pumping something up or being just a big creature in its own. Take it away. Yeah, so I think this card's really interesting because um, the, it, being able to exile any card from a graveyard I think is so powerful right now. There's so many graveyard-centric strategies. Like I mentioned before, Breach is something that's running around everywhere. And I just think this is a really good answer to that, that there's also a threat in itself. And I think this is good for some of those slower, like Azorius decks, or if you're trying to do just something that's like more combat-centric. I think this is just a really powerful equipment that gives you a lot of value in being able to mess up people's graveyards. And then it also just gets big or makes a creature really big. Like something like Ojitai, I think, really benefits from a card like this. Um, as well as like a lot of the Arden decks that are floating around everywhere. Like Arden X, like people are messing around with a bunch of different commanders uh, to partner with him. And I just think Grayfate's something that's really not respected much. And it's just so hard to deal with. Like what if someone targets your Brain Freeze or your LED with this, like your Breach line just gets substantially harder. And I think that's not something to be overlooked. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a card that's actually, I mean, people were excited about it for 60 card formats on on Twitter. I saw a lot of discussion because this can be grabbed with Stoneforge Mystic and, you know, the various creature tutors that see play there, mainly Stoneforge Mystic, but still. And uh, it was a functional piece of interaction. You didn't really normally see that Stoneforge Mystic, you know, grabbing Jitte and Legacy is uh, pretty prominent and that kind of can be creature removal or life gain or whatever. But in the modern format, a lot of times it either grabs, you know, Colossus Hammer or Shadow Spear or, you know, in some of the fairer decks, it'll grab like Culture Complete or Batter Skull. And these are just threats. Like for the most part, these are threats or part of a combo. And Lion Sash being able to kind of extend the range of what cards like Stoneforge Mystic can do in a fair shell, I think certainly is appealing for 60 card formats. And I, I guess the question then is, do you see people playing cards like Stoneforge Mystic or uh, I guess it's Steel Shaper's Gift is the tutor. The on, I don't know if it's an on top or to hand tutor for equipment. Do you see people doing that to try to find this card? Or do you think you just play it as just a card in the 99 or 98 as, as just a, something good, like a scavenging moves? Um, I definitely see some of these more equipment-focused decks running things like Stone Fortress and Steel Shaper's Gift. Uh, I don't think this is going to be something that you tutor for aggressively every time, but if you look at the table and you see like two Grixis decks, I think it's definitely something to consider when you're moving through your tutor targets. Um, obviously, there's some more equipments that are a little bit more impactful, like one of the swords or things like that. But I definitely think the utility that it offers and this like the synergy it has with these decks are just trying to like make their Arden really big and pressure life totals. Um, the added bonus of messing with people's graveyard is just very valuable. All right, fair enough. With that, we have gone through all of the rares and mythics. Quite a bit to talk about. Some that, you know, I think are easy shoe-ins like Beseju, and some, you know, are just kind of on the watch list. Or maybe they need more to kind of be a deck. So we're going to go ahead and waste no time. We're going to move on to the commons and uncommons from the set that are worth talking about. And I, well, we have one, two, three, four, five... Five potential ones to talk about, so let's dive right in. Start off with, of course, I'm going to start with the most hyped, in, at least from what I saw. I think this card is easily the most hyped, and that is Containment Construct. This is a two generic mana artifact creature construct, 2-1. Whenever you discard a card, you may exile that card from your graveyard. If you do, you may play that card this turn. I, I mean, CDH Twitter was a light, a buzz with hype for this card as soon as it was spoiled uh you know there's of course 
you know, wheel implications. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that discards cards. What are your thoughts on containment construct? I definitely think the card's really cool. It's not something that I would play just because it doesn't really fit into like the decks or strategies that I enjoy, but I definitely can see this in like some wheel centric decks. I can see it in things like Joyra, where you have some of your cards where you play an artifact, draw a card, discard a card, or things like that. So I think if you have inherent synergies with your commander, or if this is something that you're just trying to do like a lot of looting, like I think it's just a slam dunk. Like being able to get access to those cards later, or you know, kind of just like pitch a zero drop rock as like the card you're discarding with faithless looting or something, and just cast it for free is just pretty bonkers for certain lists if that's like the type of strategy that you're going for. Yeah, I mean, this is another card that I was kind of generically looking at for Bergy. You do play like random tormenting voice effects. You play a lot of wheels uh, and that kind of, I guess, uh, card type. You do a lot of discarding, but in the same vein, like Exxon cards from your yard is like, I guess like it's optional. So like it doesn't really disrupt a lot of the breach lines with LED. And it's obviously very powerful with LED being able to make that three man and immediately play all the cards out of your hand too. That was like one of the big things people were excited about. I, I don't know. This card is very hard for me to evaluate. It's certainly something I'm going to give a try in decks like Bergy, but I don't know. I don't really see it seeing a lot of play in the full, like, four to five color decks over, you know, just other fine value cards. This is what this card does, right? Like, this card gives you value where you otherwise wouldn't have gotten it off cards like Faith, is looting wheels, what have you. Uh, I think those, these four and five color decks already have a lot of tools to get value off those kinds of effects already. So I wouldn't see this card being played a lot outside the like two to three color deck range. And for that reason, I think it's maybe a little overhyped, but it's certainly a very unique effect. And, you know, with as prevalent as wheels are, especially wheel of fortune, because there's a lot of graveyard synergies in the format that card actually, (laughs) I think sees play more play than time twister, despite, time to being able to pitch the various forces and stuff i think uh containment construct certainly could have a, a couple homes but it's uh it doesn't strike me as something that's just going to break led more than it's already been broken with underworld breach yeah i agree like i don't think it's going to be format warping but i do think it's a nice little tool for some of these lower color decks as you said like i know some people i definitely think the hype will die down like i know bag of holding when that first came out people were like oh this is so cool this is amazing and it's a very similar effect, and that didn't really catch on. But this is also a body, so that does have some relevance for being able to attack or you know block. Um, but it's definitely not something like I said. I'm I'm super excited for, but I definitely can see a few lists that would want to play this card. Just like I said, they're, they're not really lists that I'm personally interested in. So I put a lot of thought into it, but I do see why people are excited, and that I do think it's going to see a lot of experimentation. But I think that it's going to kind of die down as people actually get the card in their hands. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly up more in my alley, and even I'm kind of on the fence about it, so that makes me think it's not, like, insanely busted, but I've certainly been way off the mark on card evaluation before, and like I said, these are new cards, and we are talking about it for a reason. This card, I think, has potential, so, you know, somebody break it, but I don't know if it's gonna be me. We'll we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. It's a sweet one. All right, moving right along, we have Dockside Chef. This one's sweet as it's, uh, you see, it has the same name as Dockside Extortionist. They're both Dockside, so clearly it has to be busted. You, you get it? It's sick. <laughs> Anyways. So clever. No, I'm not. Uh, Dockside Chef is one black, single black, all you got to pay for this one. Enchantment Creature, Human Citizen. Brought the enchantment creatures back. Uh, it has the activated ability, one in a black, sacrifice an artifact or a creature, draw a card, and it is a one-two 
I saw a lot of discussions around this card and especially, I mean, kind of leaning more casual. People were losing their mind that this card is just busted. And of course, I saw some discussion around the the CDH implications as well. Being able to sacrifice an artifact or a creature, extremely relevant. Um, I'm not really big on a lot of sacrifice strategies, things like Corvold or whatever. Now, obviously, it has a lot of synergy with Corvold. Sack a thing, draw two cards, woo. But like, I don't have a vision for how this card is just truly broken in half um are there any combos that you see is this card like you know potentially problematic can be grabbed with uh ranger captain so like maybe it's a little easier to tutor um yeah i, I don't really know what we're doing with this Do you have any thoughts on dockside chef yeah i i think the effect's kind of cool but i don't really see where this would fit in granted like i don't really play too much reanimator shenanigans like i play anala but that you know, we we have our line <laughs> with that. Yeah. Uh, this wouldn't be something you slot in there. And it's I think an expensive it's... outlet for a Hulk, too. So, yeah, it's just kind of expensive as a sacrifice outlet, right? Yeah, like, I think in Hulk decks it might see some play, just because a lot of times those decks are just trying to, like, find their pieces that they get stopped early. But being a sacrifice outlet that lets you draw a card is, like, kind of cool. But this isn't something, like, I don't think this replaces, like, a Viscerous Seer and a Hulk list or things like that. Like, I think you have enough sack outlets as it is. But... That's something, like, I would need to talk to someone who plays, like, a lot of mono black. Like, I don't know, maybe this is, like, pretty crazy and crick or something along those lines. But I just don't have the experience playing those decks to really see where this would slot in. And then I don't personally see the potential for it, but definitely can see, like, in casual why people are super excited by this. Yeah, I mean, it certainly has a lot of value engine potential for, for casual decks. But, uh, you know, I, I think maybe not as much in the CDH space. Maybe we're just flat wrong. I mean, feel free to hammer us on Twitter or whatever and tell us Docs and Chef's the most broken thing for X, Y, or Z reason, or it has some kind of sick combos with it. But uh, I think even with like Dockside lines, you just need so many treasures to try to like actually draw through your deck using a Dockside line. And usually you just make infinite mana and cast your commander, which wins the game in those kinds of decks anyway that are doing that thing. So uh, not really, I think this card is going to be more of a miss than anything, but given how much hype was around it when it was spoiled and when it was being talked about and both casual and competitive spaces, I wanted to, to bring it up so we could just kind of talk through it and see, you know, maybe we're missing something. And like I said, feel free to hammer us if we're missing something. Moving right along, we have Moonsnare Prototype. Now, this is a card I put on the list because of the discussion that's happening in 60 card formats around it. And I think that means... Almost certainly it's going to have some some homes in uh, the good old 100 card formats as well. Moonsnare Prototype is a one blue, single blue artifact, and it has the ability tap, so you tap it, and tap an untapped artifact or creature you control, add a colorless mana. So kind of like a springleaf drum. It also has the channel ability, uncounterable of course, four generic and a blue, discard Moonsnare Prototype, the owner of target non-land permanent puts it on top or bottom of their library. So a lot of my appeal to this card comes from its versatility. Being blue means that it can be pitched to the forces. Being a springleaf drum means it's good with uh, Rograch or whatever, the Roger, if you will. Uh, being a zero mana creature that, you know, you have an extra springleaf drum so you can kind of make uh, Roger into a, a Moxin. And then, of course, if you draw it later in the game... It's has the potential to be a five mana uncounterable answer any permanent. Just put it on top or bottom of the library. And of course you can do the thing uh, you do in 60 card formats where you can respond to like a search effect or a fetch and put the card on top. That way it gets shuffled in. Um, it's kind of the submerged trick in legacy. 
Uh, this card, I mean, there's a lot of talk about it. Having more Springleaf Drums that, you know, kind of make more mana, having it being blue to pitch to Forest. I think there's a there's a lot going on with this card. You agree, disagree? Yeah, this one I will disagree with. Um, so while it's like a Springer Drum-esque effect, the fact that it costs a blue to cast is it's substantially worse than Springleaf Drum, in my opinion. And also it only makes colorless mana, where Springleaf Drum offers color fixing. That's the main reason that's played decks like um like rock rock x partner i just don't think that it offers like enough value like i think we have better rocks and things to play i don't really see where this one gets slotted in and i think this is kind of going back to like your experience with 60 card formats where you view like the channel aspect of it to be like really cool because it's like a decent effect and then you also can channel it but i just don't think that the value it gives is really worth the include when we have so many better options for sure, for sure. Do you, you what about in like a some like even all the way down to like mono blue where your card quality is like even lower? Do you see like Emery or Urza wanting this kind of effect? Um, I don't think it's really necessary because you know Urza, for example, like all any zero drop rock, um, mm-hmm. starts to tap for blue. So I don't really see like the value this really gives you there. Um, and then maybe an Emery. Like, I don't know if there's, like, some cool combo potential or something there, but I also just don't think Emery's really a playable deck without Paradox Engine. So I just, this is just <laughs> a card, like, I don't I don't really see doing Shade much. Throne. I just don't think it's worth it, and I don't really see what this would replace in lists that are doing that type of stuff. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, certainly I think the card is undeniably much better in 60-card formats. Just paying five mana for a removal spell is just a much better rate, and... You know, having access to eight different Springleaf Drums, if that's the kind of thing you're invested in with your Zero Man Artifacts or, you know, Affinity Lists and what have you. It's certainly much better in 60-card formats. But uh, like I said, I one of the things I really enjoy about 60-card formats is the ability to kind of draw on both experiences, both in CDH and in, you know, whatever, Legacy, Modern, and pull some of those experiences into EDH and kind of see how they port and, you know, what maybe is being overhyped, underhyped, and kind of try to reconcile the two experiences and see, you know, hey, why, you know, why aren't these cards as played? Why is this card played way more? So this is kind of one of those opportunities where here's a card that I think is going to be powerful in 60-card formats that is worth at least looking at in uh, 100-card formats, and uh, even if it's not, you know, the most flashy game-breaking thing or whatever. But... Whatever, we'll see. We'll see. I, I suspect you're going to end up right more often than not, but as is the legacy idiom, if it pitches to force, it can't be that bad. <laughs> Fair. All right, moving right along. We have limited, what I assume is the limited all-star. I mean, I've played only a, a, a few games of limited in this format, but it, I mean, the card was good. Uh, Colossal Sky Turtle. This is a seven mana spell. It costs four green, green, blue. So this is a Simic card at the minimum. And it is an enchantment creature, turtle, which, you know, go figure. Colossal Sky Turtle is a turtle. Six, five, flying, ward two. And it has two different channel abilities. So the first one is two and a green. Discard Colossal Sky Turtle. Return target card from your graveyard to your hand. Little instant speed, uncounterable regrowth for you. And the second ability is one in a blue. Discard Colossal Sky Turtle. Return target creature to its owner's hand. Now, of course, both of those abilities are uncounterable. And, yeah, it can be done at instant speed. What do you think of this card? Uh, This card, I think, is kind of cool. 
I think the fact that it does two has two different channel abilities makes it pretty appealing, and they're both very relevant effects. Um, so I think the big question is like, I think like in lower Carlisus is really good. Um, but it's like, how does this compare to Eternal Witness? Um, and I don't really have an answer for that because I haven't really seen this card played much. But I do think being able to regrowth at instant speed for any card is definitely not irrelevant. Like that's very good, and the fact it also could dub as a bounce spell. Like I don't ever see a world where you're casting this unless everything went terribly wrong. But, what? <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, but like people play regrowth, people play Ewit, and the fact that this is uncounterable instant speed definitely gives it like kind of a leg up over those other cards, even if it might cost a little bit more. Um, so I definitely think it's something to consider. Uh, definitely is a very useful effect, and I definitely think this will see play in some lists. I don't think it's going to be like a staple in like four color lists and such, but I definitely can see this getting slot in three color or two color lists for sure. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm interested as well. And honestly, like, even if you have to cast it, like, there's some games. We've had some games where combat damage becomes the name of the game. This thing beats. Like, as much of it's kind of a meme, it's like, this is a seven mana spell. I mean, this blocks Kroms, okay? Like, that's where I'm at. This thing, this thing blocks Kroms, and that, that matters a lot when uh, suddenly attacking for life points matters a lot. So, uh, of course, you know, like you said, uncountable regrowth. People already play regrowth. People play Eternal Witness. Now, Eternal Witness, you can tutor for a little bit easier, you know, with things like Eldritch Evolution, Neoform, and what have you. But uh, once again, uncountable, you can still kind of find this with some of your creature tutors. Things like Worldly Tutor will still find this card. And then the, uh, a Bounce Spell, which is also uncountable, just to you know, pick up your own creature, pick up your own Dockside, pick up somebody else's stacks piece. Uh, extremely powerful. So, there's a lot of potential here. I don't think this, once again, I don't think this is going to be as ubiquitous as some of these channel lands and some of these other cards that are going to see a little bit more play. But I think there is like a, a role that this card can play that is is certainly worth discussing. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's something that something to think about when assessing your uh, interaction suite in your three color or less stacks. Uh, the yeah, last card. Sure. Yeah. The last card I want to talk about is I think probably... Only an honorable mention because it's uh, such a powerful effect for tribes. Of course, talking about Secluded Courtyard, which is a land, an uncommon land. And it says, as Secluded Courtyard enters the battlefield, choose a creature type, tap to add a colorless mana, or tap to add a mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast the creature spell of the chosen type, or activate an ability of a creature card of the chosen type. Uh, this is just another Cavern of Souls uh, just another unclaimed territory for any of the decks interested in those, which I, well, Cavern of Souls, you're a little more interested for the encounter ability, but anything, any deck that would be interested in something like unclaimed territory, uh, which of course would probably be like, like an elves tribal at most in, in multiple colors where maybe you need black. I, I don't know how actually applicable this is, but anytime you have an untapped rainbow land, I think it's at least worth calling out that, you know, having another one of these cards that you could play in your, your tribal deck makes your mana a little bit better. Uh, but I don't think this card is going to be played in very many decks at all, and uh, is probably going to see a lot of play in in casual decks. Yeah, I definitely think this is a casual card. Like I don't, I can't even really think of any tribal strategies that people play in CDH other than like mono green elves. But they're already mono green, so you shouldn't be struggling. <laughs> yeah, reach right. your Color requirements. I do think it's interesting that you can activate abilities with the mana, which is kind of cool, but. I really don't see application for this in CEDH. It's definitely something that the casuals will love and people who are playing Hydra Tribal and such will get another little tool, but yeah, for sure. that, yeah, nothing that I'm super uh, thrilled with. Oh yeah, likewise. I, I, I'm a big Tribal fan. I don't build a lot of Tribal decks, but I wanted to call it out. Like I said, any kind of untapped Rainbow Land uh, worth at least discussing. Uh, so we have discussed it. <laughs> We're going to move on. Yeah. 
the next section of this podcast, we're going to talk about the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty Commander cards. I'm not actually sure how these sets necessarily line up. All I know is like they're Commander decks that have some cards that are not like in the normal set. They have some cards that are only in the Commander set, are legal in like Legacy or whatever, but not actually legal in Standard. They're legal in Commander, of course. They're Commander decks. But uh, I guess they're just kind of ways to build on the flavor with maybe some some different stuff, more powerful cards or whatever. Uh, that they didn't want to put in the regular set for some reason. So I got three of those we're going to talk about here before we close it down. Uh, The first one I want to talk about is Imposter Mech. This card is one in a blue for an artifact vehicle. Maybe the only vehicle that sees play in CDH at all, if it sees play. Uh, You may, oh, it's a 3-1. You may have Imposter Mech enter the battlefield as a copy of a creature an opponent controls, except it's a vehicle artifact with crew three, and loses all other card types. And then, of course, it itself has Crew 3. So if there's nothing to copy, it enters as a 2-mana 3-1 Crew 3. Probably not going to happen if you're casting this card. Uh, but this card I wanted to call out because Phantasmal Image sees play. So any decks maybe that are really into that effect, uh, here's here's another copy. I think. I mean, you still get your ETBs. This card seems like it potentially has a lot of power. And if you're copying a like stacks piece or whatever, not being a creature like at face value... Could buy you a lot of uh, dodging interaction. Your thoughts on Imposter Mech? Yeah, no, I definitely think this card will see play. I think it's pretty solid. Um, being able to copy something like someone's Notion Thief or Op Agent and have it be a vehicle makes it a lot harder to remove for spot removal. It also gets around Armix, which makes me sad. Sad but, Armix noises. Um, yeah, like it's like you said, the people are playing Gillardry, people are playing Phantasmal Image, and um, I definitely think this fits a similar niche as those cards, so it's just a matter of do you prefer just taking some of the resource? Do you want to have Fimage for the flexibility of copying your own stuff? Or do you want this where you can copy something and it's a lot harder to remove? So I don't think it has application. I 100% think it's cease play. I think it's going to fit like a similar niche to the million and one two mana bounce balls we have these days. You know, it's like, does your deck prefer Alchemist Refuge versus Windsor Rebuke versus Snap? Um, that type of thing where it's really just going to come down to player preference. But this is definitely something that's going to see play. Yeah, I mean, notably, this card kind of is really good with Alchemist Refuge and Bounce Bell is quite unlike Phantasmal Image where this card can enter, you copy a Dockside or whatever, make a million treasures, then pick it up. You can maybe do your own Dockside combos like with uh, Imposter Mech uh, where like Phantasmal Image can't do those because of course if you target it, it gets sacrificed. So this card, I mean, potentially in the right decks could be a straight upgrade to Phantasmal Image and that's kind of wild to me. I mean, Phantasmal Image playable in 60 card formats, like been a CDH staple for quite a while now. Like, this card, this card's given Phantasmal Image a run for its money, then it's got to be pretty good. I think this card's uh, really interesting, really appealing. And like you said, being able to make like a Notion Thief where, you know, it doesn't just die to like any damage spell, like any kind of creature removal. Like it's just, and then you have to pay four mana to replay it. Like being able to have all these things for two mana that is resilient to some of the creature removal instead of exactly the opposite, like Phantasmal Image, I think is is really, really, really can't be undersold. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's all going to come down to how your deck's built, player preference, but like it's definitely something that's going to see play. Like it's clone effects are good. People play powerful cards and you want to steal them or copy them. And it's just a matter of what works for you. And like, yeah, I didn't even like think of Dockside loop potential with this, but that's definitely, if you have like an infinite mana out in the command zone, I'm sure there's ways you can finagle an infinite loop with this and something. I think yeah. off the top of my head, but like there's definitely a lot of potential there for possible combos. So it really just comes down to, like I said, the way the deck is built and what the pilot prefers but it's definitely very good yeah i, I agree i agree 
All right, we got two more cards left we're going to talk about from Commander before we close the show down. Next up, also a lot of hype the second this card was spoiled because of a particular combo that is resulting of it. We have Swift Reconfiguration. This is a one white enchantment aura that has flash, enchant creature or vehicle. Enchanted permanent is a vehicle artifact with crew five and loses all other card types. It's not a creature unless it is crewed. So this can, you know, of course, kind of function as a removal spell for a big creature. Matters, I don't know, maybe what's just like a big creature that attacks. Even Ajila still gets its abilities, but, you know, it can kind of function as a removal spell if you're being attacked. But I think the more pressing and common interaction with it is its synergy with Devoted Druid. Uh, yeah, so if you put this on Devoted Druid, right, it loses it loses its it's card type, so it's not a creature. So you can just put as many minus one minus one counters on it as you want, and just make infinite green mana. It's uh, just three mana, two cards. I even think it Druid doesn't even have to be like can be summoning sick because it just becomes an artifact. So you just tap it. Yeah, so you can on you can activate it. it right away. Yeah, right away. Three mana, bam, about bam, two cards, infinite mana, do whatever you want. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? Is this is this the next combo that's going to sweep CDH? I mean, it's cheap. It's cheap. Champions I, are easy to tutor. Sword creatures. I don't. I definitely think it's a good combo. I don't think it's going to like sweep every deck. Um, but I do think it has a lot of potential and it has a lot of good uses, especially with Devoted Druid. And I'm sure there's other ways that people find a way to uh, break this card. Um, it's also pretty cool for like different Hulk piles. Um, that's something I remember Scoots was talking about it recently with Jamaican Dude, where it kind of makes the Hulk piles a little bit easier. It kind of gives like good layering with some other combos that you're already running. So I definitely think the card's very cool. Um, has potential definitely you're definitely going to see it and it is something that can be a little bit hard to interact and then it can kind of screw people other people over by like removing creature types from something so definitely think it has a lot of potential think it'll be pretty cool but i don't think it's going to be like the next big combo in cdh but i think when you're doing like hulk stuff or other like creature based combo decks i think this is something that you should consider if you're in the right colors yeah i i definitely agree and like i said it is kind of neat that it can enchant know any kind of creature that's maybe attacking you or whatever like if kenrith is getting huge or whatever you just need to stop it from beating you down it can kind of have a little bit of other application but in general i think it's primarily just going to be used for combo piece and cdh contexts and having flash of course once again can't be understated you can like make in, uh, infinite mana at instant speed so if you just have your devoted druid out people need to like seriously be thinking oh well if i go to remove this they can just swift, swift reconfiguration in response and then who knows you know court of calling at instant speed maybe they already have their thrasios or whatever on board to start drawing cards like it, it's just so cheap and has instant speed like instant speed potential like this uh i think this could see quite a bit of play but i don't know that it's you know as busted as it appeared when people first were like wow this is just this is crazy like it just makes devoted druid work immediately and devoted druid's already been a deck in 60 card formats in modern it's been like an actual tiered deck so uh yeah i don't know interesting i'm interested to see where people go with it and having to be in specifically green and white is a is an awkward start so i think you're going to want to be in a lot of colors anyway and you know maybe it's just part of a, a layering of a lot of different combos oh. yeah i agree with all that <laughs> Moving on to our final card. This is one I put on here because of the presence of a particularly powerful keyword. We are looking at Yoshimaru Ever Faithful. This card costs a single dub, one white, legendary creature doggo. This is just a dog. Whenever another legendary permanent enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on Yoshimaru Ever Faithful. It's a one one to start. And it has partner. 
So what's appealing about this card, of course, is it has partner. And so you pair it with something like Tavesh, it's, oh, look, white ancestral recall. Just one white, draw three cards. Quite powerful. Also, of course, if Luris starts seeing more play, this is a white commander that costs less than two that you can play and play as part of a partner uh, pairing that also uses Luris. So I think having partner, being cheap for anything that cares about having cheap creatures, Springleaf Drums we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of things that pay you off for having uh, a cheap commander in the command zone. You get a lot of that out of Yoshimaru as well. Yeah, I, I think the card's cool. I think it's more of like a meme than anything. Like people are like, oh, yes, a dog. Like we're going to put it in the command zone. I don't yeah. think it's going to have like a huge splash, but having partner just inherently makes it bonkers, in my opinion, in some way. Like if you, like, you want to play like a Thrasios deck, but you don't want to do Thrasios Timna for whatever reason, you can just slot this in. And Thrasios is one of the best commanders that exists right now. So now you got Thrasios plus white. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, definitely has a lot of flexibility. Um, I don't think it offers like too much advantage in the command zone, but I definitely think it's an LLC play mostly because it's a dog and we love those best boys. Fair enough, fair enough. Like I said, I think mostly it's going to be in uh, like to either Tavesh Piles where you're trying to do some kind of like black-white combo stuff or it's going to be in uh, some kind of like Lurus stuff. You have to have some reason to break it because obviously it's not broken on its own in a CDH context, but uh, nonetheless... I think it's uh, certainly an interesting card, um, and having partner I think means that any card is worth worth looking at because partners are just so powerful. Having access to yet another card in the command zone, yeah, for sure. All right, well, with that, I think we've gone over all our cards on Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. You wanna you wanna just like rank the top three that you think are gonna have the highest impact on CEDH or something? That's that's kind of what I did. I, I jotted down the top three, and I I kind of want your thoughts. What you got? Uh uh, no particular order. I think it's going to be Hinata, uh, Beseju, and March of the Swirly Mist. Fair enough. I mean, two of those shared on me. Can't deny Beseju. Can't deny Hinata. I actually put Yoshimaru because I think, like I said, partners, I think they matter. I think people are going to experiment a lot with it. And there's going to be some deck lists that come across abusing it in some way. Just because just having a cheap resource out of the command zone every game is really, really powerful. We've seen that with Roger. I mean, look how like Roger literally does nothing. And like it's an old one, it does nothing. And we see people playing it because just the free resource matters for a lot of reasons. So I think Yoshimaru can see a lot of play. I think it matters. And uh, yeah, I think it's a powerful card coming out of the, coming out of the new set. Lots to think about, lots to play with, and a lot of little cards for a lot of different decks. Sweet set. Very, very excited we returned to, return to Kamigawa. Any yeah, final I... thoughts before we close it down? Uh. Not particularly. I'm just, I love the art of Kamigawa. That's one of my favorite old sets, even if like power level wise, it, it wasn't the best, but I just love the lore and everything with Kamigawa. So it's cool to go back and I'm also a sucker for anything cyberpunk. So definitely. Oh, so you're just loving in heaven over here with the set. Oh yeah. I, everything's been, been amazing. Big fan. We got a lot of cool new tools and I'm hoping that future sets that come out, will start to uh, implement some of these other new mechanics or introduce some other mechanics. Like bringing channeling back would be really cool. If we start it's to powerful, see more of those yeah. cards. And yeah, this, I'm always a fan of sets that have a lot of uh, cards that are relevant, not just for CDH, but other formats. And this one really checks all the boxes, I feel. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm kind of in the same boat. A lot of love for Kamigawa. I was a casual player when the first round of Kamigawa came through. I thought the art was awesome. I thought the world was awesome. And I couldn't wait to go back. I was actually really disappointed when I found out the set was generically considered like bad or whatever. But as a casual, I thought it was so sick. Uh, but yeah, super, super glad to be back. Super glad to see a lot of really powerful cards. and. Uh, excited to get jamming some games. So, before we close it down, 
where can we find you, Mikey Hollowhand? If someone wanted to reach out and maybe bash Crom Armix or, you know, talk about how great Ranch is or even ask about <laughs> watches, where would, where would they do that? Uh, I'm very active on Discord. You can find me like in the Monarch Discord because I'm on the, the staff for the, uh, those events. I'm in Playing With Power. Uh, and I'm also recently on Twitter. Twitter? Oh, yeah. No. I finally, uh, finally did the thing after people were trying to get me on forever. Shout out to Cal from Playing With Power. He really uh, motivated me to make that plunge. Uh, you can find me at, at Mikey Hollihan. Um, it's H O L O H A N. And feel free to just uh, bash me in public. It's great. I, I live for that. <laughs> That's so toxic. It's, well, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. You can find me at viral underscore Drake on Twitter. You can also find me on Moxfield at viral Drake if you want to see some of the CDH lists I'm working on. Um, I, I'm in some of the discords, not as active on Discord as, as Mikey is. Um, I prefer to interact on things like Twitter, uh, despite it being generically kind of uh, a mess, we'll say. Uh, but yeah, if you want to reach out to me on either of those platforms, you can of course find the podcast at the Miscast MTG, where we'll be posting all our updates. You can find uh, all the links to all of our uh, all of our episodes, and even both of our Twitters should be in the uh, profile description as well. And with that. I hope you all have an awesome day, wherever you're at, whenever this episode comes out. Thank you for joining me, Mikey. We'll see you next time.